Welcome to the Animal Law Matters podcast presented by K&R Animal Law. My name's Mike and I'm here with my colleague Narman. We are partners of K&R Animal Law, which is a private law firm dedicated to helping animals and their human defenders. We created this podcast to give listeners a broad overview of animal law from a legal, philosophical, theoretical and practical perspective. Our aim is to help educate our listeners about animal law matters and encourage them to take action to help create a better world for animals. On today's podcast, we have Leo Bromberg, who is a lawyer and PhD candidate at Melbourne Uni. Leo is undertaking his PhD on animal welfare regulation. How are you today, Leo? I'm very good, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. This is the second time we're recording this podcast. We had a false start the other night at Lentil as Anything. We thought that the background noise would be okay, but as it turned out, it wasn't. So we're all prepared for tonight. So we might just jump straight into the the questions. Sounds good. So Leo, you're completing your PhD in animal welfare regulation. What is your thesis about? Thanks, Mike. So my PhD research is focused on, as you said, Australian farm animal welfare regulation. And what I'm looking at specifically is standard setting. And um, so as many listeners of this podcast may be aware, in Australia and in many other jurisdictions, cruelty to animals is a criminal offence. But painful or, or, you know, some people would say, lots of people would say cruel procedures such as mulesing and lots of things like Extreme confinement of farmed animals are entirely legal in Australia. So how can this be the case? Well, so at a very high level, you could say that farmed animals don't have rights, but they have the status, the legal status of property of their human owners. And that's, of course, true. And that's part of the story. But the kind of the more detailed reasons relate to how we regulate farmed animal welfare. So we have various animal cruelty provisions in each state and territory um, in their Animal Welfare Acts. But an important part of each of those laws is that they embody a utilitarian philosophy, the rationale of which is that some animal suffering is considered to be kind of necessary um, or, you know, necessary suffering. Um, So when our animal welfare legislation promotes animal welfare. Um, that's kind of the, the stated purpose, and it's like it's meant to protect animals from suffering. It doesn't forbid what, what is considered to be necessary suffering. But how do we determine what practices are deemed to be necessary or acceptable? Well, so this might be an area where not everyone will agree. In fact, probably lots of people will disagree. It comes down to one's ethical position. So my view of what constitutes necessary suffering or good animal welfare may be different to yours, for example, or, you know, what is adequate animal welfare. And so if your view is that we should never use animals at all, um, then you'd say animal suffering caused by us anyway is never necessary. But if we're kind of thinking about animal agriculture as, you know, being here to stay, um, then we have to make some of these decisions Um, So for a lot of people, thinking about what practices or suffering is necessary involves some form of weighing up of the costs and benefits. So we'd ask, does the practice provide humans or maybe even sometimes other animals with benefits? And what are the costs? And I'm not talking just about dollar costs here. I'm talking about, um, you know, pain or suffering. So 
um, we'd ask ourselves questions like, are farmed animals given a good life where they have the company of other animals? Do they have opportunities to express natural behaviours or is their life kind of short and miserable? Um, and if we're looking at a particular practice, would we say, does it cause animals to suffer great pain or is it just mild discomfort that they get over? Um, so how would you decide one way you could about a particular practice? You could take it to a vote. So um, that's one way. You could talk to a panel of independent experts and get their views. Um, so that's how you could think about it. But in practice, that doesn't happen under our animal welfare laws. So if you wanted to work out whether a particular practice is like necessary suffering, we would look at the animal welfare standards. And what do I mean by animal welfare standards? I'm talking about what's called the Australian Animal Welfare Standards. Um, and before we had those standards, they've, they've been developed over the last 10 years or so, um, we had what were called were model codes of practice. Um, they were developed in the 80s in response to the emergence of animal activism in Australia. And what those codes did were they codified um, the types of practices which were occurring in the various industries. They were entirely voluntary, so there was no consequence for breaching a particular provision of one of these model codes. But what they did, um, they did provide a defence to a charge of animal cruelty. So through those kinds of mechanisms, certain activities um, became considered to be acceptable farming practices and they were excluded from the scope of animal cruelty legislation. And so just kind of to recap, we do have obviously in every country there's going to be acts of like sadistic cruelty or really bad neglect and those can be prosecuted, but most forms of kind of suffering of animals is probably comes down to some of these acceptable practices. Um, so there have been calls to overhaul um, these codes. Um, some of the listeners may have heard about the Animals Australia, for example, they refer to the old codes as codes of cruelty. Um, so they don't view them positively, to say the least. Um, so and what I, do, what I set out to do in my, in my um, PhD is... I want to critically evaluate the legitimacy of our standards in Australia. And there's a move towards enacting new public standards, which in theory have the potential of redefining the scope of permissible industry practices. So what I'm looking at is the development of these new standards and guidelines, which will replace the old model codes of practice. These processes have been going on for about 15 years now and they're managed by an organisation called Animal Health Australia, which is an organisation which has uh, representatives from state agriculture departments, so kind of the regulators and the industries that are affected. Um, and so just to kind of recap, um, the, the standards that uh, regulate farmed animal welfare, they actually impact a lot of stakeholders. So think of farmers, supermarkets, small businesses, people who care about Animals, obviously, the animals themselves are kind of stakeholders um, because their um, welfare is governed by these codes. And, um, and there's a wealth of scientific evidence that animals, including those who are farmed intensively, are sentient. Um, but these standard-setting processes, while they have the potential to redefine um, the kind of the animal welfare standards, 
uh, and practices, they've been criticised um, over the last number of years by a number of diverse actors and as well as their kind of academic literature. Um, a recurring criticism is that they're very complex processes, the industry dominates them, and that the views of public interest groups, scientists, activists, and the broader community are not being genuinely listened to. It's been observed that standards simply entrench current industry practices and further powerful interests rather than promote welfare improvements and reflect scientific understandings. And to evaluate the legitimacy of these standards, I'm undertaking a few case studies and I focus on the standard setting processes managed by Animal Health Australia. I'm using qualitative methods such as um, semi-structured interviews with regulatory stakeholders as well as documentary analysis to explore the ethical and strategic positions of the various stakeholders. And the key focus of my work is to investigate whether the standard setting process accords with principles of procedural justice, something that's obviously um, quite uh, key to a lot of you know, people who've studied law, and also whether they provide a forum for encouraging uh, deliberation on some of these kind of more most important contentious animal welfare issues. So I'm interested whether there's a potential for a more democratic approach to setting animal welfare standards and which would lead to more legitimate animal welfare regulation and encourage social debate about our use and treatment of animals. Um, I'm also interested in how the normative pressure from social movements could influence regulation and farmed animal welfare practices. That sounds like a really important and interesting thesis that you're doing there, Leo. So Leo, you recently wrote an article titled Numbing the Pain or Diffusing the Pressure, the co-optation of Peter's naming and shaming campaign against mulesing. Could you please explain the background to that article? Yes. So basically the article um, stems out of my PhD thesis. Um, it's going to be published in the journal Law and Policy. Um, and in, in one sense, I stumbled on this case study while planning the empirical research of my PhD. I wanted to identify some of the more contested and controversial animal welfare practices that I was going to investigate. So something that, you know, stimulates debate and um, uh, controversy. Um, and of course, mulesing is one of these controversial issues that came up. But what I found as I started to look into this is in the years prior to the Australian Animal Welfare Standard for sheep, uh, the process for setting that standard, there had been this really high-profile campaign that the US-based group PETA had waged against the Australian wool industry. So I kind of decided to look into it further. Um, and I'll give some listeners might not be familiar with the PETA campaign because um, it was also now started over 15 years ago. And so I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, so many people will be aware that we have a lot of sheep in Australia. And if you're just driving past, you'll see lots of them. But you might not be aware of the sheer number of sheep. Um, we are the world's largest wool producer. And in fact, we're the source of around 80% of merino wool produced worldwide. Um, Australian wool, the vast majority of it is exported. And it's one of our most significant agricultural exports. So, and what happens to this wool? More than two thirds of the exports flow to China, 
and there it's processed to produce clothing. Some of it's obviously actually increasingly being used in China for its own kind of clothing, but much of it is exported around the world. So US and Europe are obviously our big markets as well. Um, some of it probably comes back to Australia. Um, so, um, and how this musing issue came about was in the late 19th century, we introduced the wrinkly Vermont Merino sheep to Australia. And it was thought that crossing this breed with the Australian Merino was uh, going to increase the skin area. And so that would increase the wool yields. Um, unfortunately, the large number of wrinkles made the sheep particularly vulnerable to fly strike, which is a very serious and potentially deadly condition. Um, so the mulesing procedure was named after J.H.W. Mules. He was a sheep farmer who first performed the operation in the 1930s. It involves the surgical removal of wool-bearing wool skin from either side of the sheep's breech and around the tail stump, and it's performed using uh, straight or curved edge shears. So it was performed to reduce the risk of fly strike. Um, but And since it was performed in the 30s, it's been quite controversial. Um, so as part of my case study, I actually looked back uh, through the media coverage that I could gather um, relating to mulesing. And there was sustained debate between wool producers about how effective it was relative to other methods of fly strike control. And sometimes some of the farmers were concerned about um, cruelty. Um, and so until very recently, I'm going to come back to this later, mulesing was performed without any pain relief. Um, and so there's been, there's been research um, about the, ra the range of painful procedures which are undertaken on sheep around the world. So there's things like castration, tail docking and ear tagging. Um, but the pain caused by mulesing is the most contentious issue, ethical issue, affecting the wool industry. Um, so now turning to PETA, well, it's, they characterise themselves as the largest animal rights organisation in the world. Um, with over 6 million supporters and members. Um, they're a US-based nonprofit charitable organization established in 1980 by Ingrid Newkirk, a former state law enforcement officer, um, with the objective of establishing and defending the rights of animals. Um, and in the 1980s, Peter had pursued a more radical agenda, um, and they still continue to describe their position as uncompromising on animal rights. But in recent decades, including during this campaign, um, the organisation has sought to work to achieve incremental changes and reforms, often through campaigns such as letter writing and naming and shaming businesses for poor animal welfare practices. Um, so at the time of Peter's campaign, the scope of acceptable sheep husbandry practices in Australia was defined by those voluntary model codes of practice that I mentioned before. Um, so mulesing had been contentious for, also for the Australian animal protection movement. So there was conflict. Um, some of the more radical groups, such as animal liberation, were critical of mulesing. They called for pain relief to be provided for the practice, international boycotts of Australian wool. Um, but your more mainstream animal protection groups, such as the RSPCA, didn't oppose mulesing on the basis that the practice was seen to be necessary. Again, there's that issue of necessary suffering. There was seen to be no readily available alternatives to it. Um, 
So turning to the campaign, um, so the animal protection movement first employed conventional lobbying and uh, protest tactics, um, but that had failed to produce policy reform in relation to mulesing over several decades. Um, it just The issue didn't spark kind of wider public interest. And in fact, what I found interesting when I was looking at this was that Peter itself had not been aware of the mulesing procedure until early 2004 when Mark Pearson, so he's now um, an animal justice MP in New South Wales, he was the executive director of uh, New South Wales Animal Liberation Activist Group, and he recorded a video of the practice and he sent it to them. So that's how they found out about it. Um, so Peter itself, when they found out about it, they tried a conventional protest strategy um, they wanted to pressure the government first to ban mulesing and also they were concerned about live export, um, as all the other groups were too. Um, and so as part of a kind of they had a publicity stunt, um, both the Australian Prime Minister John Howard and the federal leader of the opposition, Kevin Rudd, they were shadowed by a Peter campaigner dressed up as Lucy the Sheep throughout the 2004 uh, election campaign. So obviously those kinds of things, they did receive some media attention, but they were actually ignored by the decision makers in the industry. Um, this probably reflected the fact that the practice had been so entrenched in our wool industry for decades, it was seen as a necessary evil by the industry as well as even the more moderate elements of the protection animal protection movement. So they could those peer protesters could be very easily dismissed by the wool industry and its allies as representing fringe and uninformed views from a foreign country that we trust don't meddle in our affairs. Um, but then what Peter did was they, they ramped up its campaign. So um, here you now have a contest between the world's largest animal rights group and the world's largest wool producing country. And what Peter did, how it supercharged its campaign was it targeted major clothing brands and retailers. And the way it did this is it threatened to name and shame those retailers and brands that failed to respond to its calls to boycott Australian wool. Um, so it, this was going on for a couple of months and the critical moment of the campaign, and I talk about this, there's a really, there's a chart of this in the paper as well. Um, it occurred in October, 2004, uh, when Peter convinced a uh, leading American fashion retailer, Abercrombie & Fitch, to boycott Australian wool. And there was this uh, probably feeling among the wool industry that they were, they're worried about a domino effect. Um, so in response to this kind of concern and this uh, possible domino effect, um, the wool industry actually committed to phase out mulesing by 2010, um, so in six years. Um, but the move away from mulesing didn't actually happen. In 2009, so a year before the deadline, the wool industry marketing and research organization called Australian Wool Industries, they argued that there was a lack of commercial quick and easy alternatives. So they said that they weren't going to um, meet that deadline. Um, they said it was a supposed deadline. So it wasn't really a deadline anyway. Um, so if we look to um, today, the practice does still continue. Um, so 11 years later, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but what has actually happened over time was that the campaign did 
uh, caused a significant upheaval in the Australian wool industry. It sparked international public outrage and it prompted many brands to boycott Australian wool. And there's been research which showed that the campaign markedly raised the profile of the issue among stakeholders. So farmers, scientists, animal ad welfare advocates, as well as among the general public, um, there was extensive media reporting of the campaign in the print media, on television and online. The vast majority of the coverage took place in the rural Australian newspapers, but there was also interest internationally, um, including the major news organisations. So this Peter's campaign, which was supported by a number of retailers and fashion brands, as well as celebrities such as Pink, and um, I think there were quite a, um, quite a few others, and public figures as well, um, that kind of thrust the Australian wool industry into the limelight for all the wrong reasons. Um, so usually when um, businesses or governments or industries, when they're facing normative pressure from activist campaigns, what they do is they try to diffuse the pressure by characterising instances of animal suffering as unfortunate but isolated instances, kind of your rogue wolf or your, your bad eggs. Um, but... As I mentioned earlier, this response was not available here because mulesing without pain relief was both widespread and legal in Australia. And indeed, it was actually legitimated as a necessary practice through the codes of practice. That sounds like quite the campaign. And Leo, what were the conclusions that you drew in that article? Yes, so... In this article, I was interested in investigating the way in which normative pressure from social movements could translate into public standards and influence regulation practices. So I present the case study as a contest between animal activists and sheep farmers that also draws in a range of other players, such as the scientists, businesses and politicians. And what I was grappling, in this, grappling with in this article was this tension that social movements and animal activists, but probably all, all activists really, uh, confront in deciding whether to campaign for incremental policy reform and whether this type of campaigning would compromise their more ambitious objectives. And this was something that I've thought about and I'm still thinking about um, in relation to how I do things in my own personal and professional life and how we can make the world a better place for animals. Um, so underpinning contests over animal welfare regulation are some really important moral questions, such as what constitutes a good life for animals and what constitutes unnecessary suffering, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the other question for some people would be um, whether animal exploitation can ever be justified on any grounds. Um, so that's where you're talking about abolitionists. Um, they would level a critique at animal exploitation, arguing that it, it is rarely, if ever, justified. But then there'll be others who will argue that the lives of animals can be improved incrementally, such as through regulation, obviously relevant to my work, um, and that some of the more benign forms of animal use should continue. So this kind of um, problem for people who've read some of the kind of philosophical debates in the area, it's the argument between abolitionists and welfareists. Um, so critics of campaigns targeting incremental reform 
suggest that they only create the appearance of improvement while ultimately legitimating existing systems. So they make us feel good about something without, without doing it. Um, so quite um, a lot of people might know that Gary Francioni, the vegan uh, philosopher, he argues that pragmatic campaigns by organisations such as PETA wrongly assume that incremental reforms lead to a cessation of animal exploitation. So he says that there's, we're, they're assuming that there's some causal connection between cleaner cages today and empty cages tomorrow. So the key dilemma faced by activists is whether to campaign for those incremental policy reforms and risk co-option and watered down kind of unsatisfying outcomes or whether they should avoid compromise, stay true to their kind of more radical objectives and values, but then potentially fail to have any impact on broader society. So in my article, I use the concept of corporatization. It's a concept that um, academics uh, King and Busa came up with. And I use that concept to help explain the campaign against musing and how things panned out. So they define corporatization as a particular form of cooptation in which corporations come to dominate fields initiated by activists and corporatized versions become widespread. So it kind of takes over the, the field. Um, it involves businesses simplifying or business interests simplifying and scaling up those ideas of the social movement activists. Typically, they suggest that it takes place through the commodification of activists' ideas or the development of technological fixes to perceive problems. I conclude in my article that Peter's, um, well, not just Peter's, but generally activist tactics and strategies, including the framing of policy problems, how they define the problem, in a way to allow for corporate buy-in can make corporatization more likely. Um, but I also show that corporatization can be pivotal in securing that kind of incremental regulatory reform. Um, but because corporatization doesn't challenge the fundamental assumptions underpinning production systems and regulation, those corporatized solutions or outcomes, they may not accord with activist values. So I don't, I'm not making an argument in the article about um, for corporatization or against it. Um, what I suggest is it's important to consider whether corporatization is in line with activist values and move and the movement's long-term goals in each particular case um, or each particular movement. Um, so in the article, I suggest that Peter's campaign resulted in several important but corporatized outcomes. Um, so the heightened interest in musing prompted scientists to work on alternatives to musing as well as pain relief, which hadn't happened, before, which hadn't happened to the same extent before. Um, the main alternative to musing include breeding sheep that are not susceptible to fly strike in the first place and improving husbandry practices. But both of those uh, approaches would require some producers to make very significant changes. It would not be commercial quick and easy at all. Um, so at the same time, other scientists also developed pain relief products, which could be used for musing. And so I suggest in my article that pain relief for musing is essentially a technological fix. 
So it's not, you know, technically you could say it's not an alternative to music because music still, ha still happens. And depending on which form of pain relief is used, sheep will suffer. Or they might suffer a lot or they might suffer less. Um, but it did create a practical solution for the wool industry that was certainly commercial, quick and easy. And it satisfied the welfare concerns of many retailers. So that's one development. The second related development was the implementation of what was called the National Wool Declaration. Um, it was a new voluntary declaration scheme which provided potential buyers with information on the mulesing status of their wool. So they could find out whether the wool comes from mules sheep and whether pain relief was used. And this uh, declaration scheme was introduced following urgent requests from wool exporters during this contest. So over time, the impact of Peter's campaign has has waned. So in terms of the media, um, you know, that's all come down quite a lot. Um, and other animal activists still advocate for a cessation of mulesing. Um, lots of them argue that pain relief is not a long-term solution. But at the same time, there's only been a very small increase in the number of farmers who have ceased to mules, but there's been a very significant increase in the take-up of pain relief. So as it stands, there are likely incremental improvement in animal welfare as a result of the campaign. So all those sheep that used to be mules without pain relief now get pain relief, lots of them are, but the industry is hardly closer to an end of mulesing. So this highlights the challenges faced by social movement activists in reconciling pragmatic campaigns targeting incremental reforms with their longer term objectives. So the Peter case study um, shows how activists and industry groups influence animal welfare practices. The existence of the National Wool Declaration means that mulesing status has been corporatized as businesses can now readily source wool that is perceived to be welfare friendly. What was initially presented by activists as an unnecessary injustice perpetrated against animals by the Australian wool industry has been repackaged into a range of animal welfare choices which could then be exercised by market participants, farmers and retailers and possibly some of the more informed consumers. Um, corporate interests such as international retailers and multinational pharmaceutical companies that develop these pain relief products are capitalizing on public concerns about farmed animal welfare. And this has the effect of de-radicalizing activists' ideas and legitimizing existing practices. So, and the, the, the availability of this declaration and other voluntary private standards that have emerged, such as the US-based responsible wool standard would make businesses unlikely to support another activist boycott relating to the same issue. Um, what I find also quite interesting about um, this campaign is that they occurred largely in the absence of changes to public animal welfare regulation. So society is increasingly concerned about how we treat farmed animals, but governments in places such as Australia often take a back seat on these ethical issues surrounding farmed animal welfare which leaves the fate of farmed animals to the invisible hand of the market and these kinds of campaigns as well. The corporatization of mulesing status and the development of pain relief 
is in line with Australian government's light-handed approach to animal welfare regulation. Although the PETA boycott was successful in placing mulesing on the agenda and laying the groundwork for several market-based changes, it's quite interesting to compare these developments with what happened in neighbouring New Zealand at the same time. So in response to PETA's campaign targeting Australian wool, New Zealand commenced its own phase-out of mulesing. The New Zealand government has since criminalised the practice and all other forms of sheep breach modification. There's several other ways of kind of doing the same thing. Um, and it just shows that government regulation can still play an important role in relation to animal welfare um, to ensure the practices are in line with social expectations. Although wool industry figures have claimed that um, pain relief for mulesing is a temporary solution, there also appears to be a significant resistance within the industry to phasing out mulesing. And I think partially it's because mulesing with pain relief is so effective and cheap and easy, it doesn't require significant changes to the status quo practices. So the claim that mulesing constitutes unnecessary suffering remains contested, particularly in Australia, but it is becoming increasingly accepted that readily available pain relief must be administered for the procedure. So by adopting the logic and language of animal welfare law, such as the welfarist idea of unnecessary suffering, rather than pushing an animal rights agenda or advocating for fundamental reforms, Peter was able to gain legitimacy for its claims, obtain buy-in from corporate and industry stakeholders, and help secure incremental improvements in animal welfare regulation. Throughout the course of the contest, proponents of mulesing argued that farmers should have the option of mulesing. However, what's quite interesting, more recently, uh, farming industry groups in some Australian states have joined animal activists in calling for governments to make pain relief for mulesing mandatory. So that's a significant change. And last year, or 20, actually 2019, the year before, um, the state of Victoria became the first Australian government to respond to these calls by enacting regulations mandating pain relief for the mulesing procedure, and these have now come into effect. So that's a really interesting development as well. Um, and, um, so on the one hand, mandating pain relief for mulesing further entrenches and legitimates this procedure. Um, it provides a shield for the wool industry, allowing it to respond to future anti-mulesing campaigns by pointing to pain relief and the av availability of premium animal-friendly alternatives, such as mules-free wool. But on the other hand, mandating pain relief for mulesing also represents a symbolic acknowledgement by the government and animal industries that animals feel pain and that animal industries have a duty to reduce their suffering. Um, so the push to mandate pain relief reflects a growing acceptance within Australian industries, within animal industries, sorry, that Australian citizens and the international community increasingly expect readily available pain relief to be used for procedures such as mulesing. Mandating pain relief for mulesing, together with the formal recognition of animal sentience in legislation and by corporate actors, provides a powerful precedent allowing activists to successfully campaign for mandatory pain relief for other procedures and in other industries, and that's probably happening. Um, so it does suggest that Peter's campaign is 
while it's been corporatized, it is also contributing to evolving public norms in relation to animals. That, that sounds like a really fascinating analysis there, Leo, and a really complex issue that you've tackled. And I know that you're keen to write some more articles on different topics down the track, maybe once you've finished your PhD. We're going to change directions now, Leo. If you could change one law in Australia relating to animals, what would it be? That's a really hard question. And one reason I find it such a hard question comes down to whether we're talking about laws more in the ideal world or in the very imperfect political world we live in today. So if we're talking about kind of more ambitious reforms, fundamentally, I think we need to look at addressing the way that we exercise power over animals by enfranchising. What we need to do is enfranchise animals in our society. Um, state institutions have the power to profoundly affect the lives of animals and cause or relieve immense suffering. We designate some classes of animals as pets, some as pests, some as endangered and thus, you know, we, we, they're worthy of protection. Some we treat as resources, um, but they're all subordinate to us and subject to being dominated. Um, so obviously an intensive animal agriculture Every aspect of the lives of what are called production animals or livestock, such as movement, reproduction, life, lifespan, is subject to our control. And other classes of animals, such as wild animals, well, they have a greater level of freedom, but ultimately human societies still either control or have the capacity to control all fundamental aspects of their lives. So if we're thinking about the longer-term objectives, that accord with our values as a society um, that doesn't want to cause animals to suffer, then we need to have strong institutions and effective laws that recognise that animals are sentient beings and that they're affected by our actions or inactions. They need to be treated with respect and cannot be used instrumentally because they have interests of their own and a just society needs to identify those interests and ensure that they're not trampled upon or simply overridden by human interests, especially trivial ones. So at a very high level, you could grant animals legal rights with some form of guardianship model, which ensures that there are people or institutions who would fulfill the role of defending their rights in court. But you'd also need to ensure that animals have political rights. And I'm not saying that animals should be able to vote or anything like that, they don't need that. But what we need is practical mechanisms that ensure that animals are enfranchised in our societies. The anthropocentric nature of human political and regulatory institutions and the vulnerable nature of animals relative to humans and our institutions means that all too often their voices are not being listened to. We need to recognise that animals are affected by the decisions that we make and so we need to take their interests into account when we think about how we make decisions about animals. We also need to think about animals when we're considering the society we want to live in, when we think of what constitutes the public interest. Um, so society needs to continuously revisit and critique the overarching objective behind regulating and permitting different forms of animal use. And it's not gonna be straightforward in all situations. There's gonna be moral disagreement between citizens and conflicts between interests, including between different animals, will arise. So some of these sorts of moral questions already occur, 
And if we think of trying to enfranchise animals, we're only going to make these moral questions more visible. But I think that since many human, animal, and environmental benefits or harms are interconnected, by thinking about animal interests, we're more likely to create a society that values a safe and healthy environment, treats humans and animals with respect, and provides all of us with a good life. Having said that, there are probably some real achievable reforms that are more kind of politically uh, palatable that would improve the lot of animals that are being exploited today. So, for example, we could get farmed animals out of cages. And so animal welfare scientists and many in the community recognize that confining animals to a cage for their whole life or for long periods of time does not equate to good welfare. And that's putting it very mildly. We could also, like in the case study that I mentioned, we could think of about mandating effective pain relief for procedures which cause animals to suffer, or we could ban those procedures where they're not necessary for the welfare of the animal or where animal-friendly alternatives exist. And so both of those types of reforms are positive in the sense that as a society, we'd be recognising that animals feel pain and have rich inner lives, and that we have a duty to reduce their suffering and provide them with opportunities to perform natural behaviors. So that's my kind of more practical um, example of laws. Thanks very much for that, Leo. Leo, I really appreciate your, your considered response to that question. So Leo, what is one thing you are excited about in relation to the animal protection movement? So it's quite a few things. If I had to sort of think of one, so, um, when I talked about earlier about the pharmaceutical companies developing pain relief for husbandry per, per procedures and fashion brands looking to develop or adopt high animal welfare standards, I said that corporate interests are trying to capitalize on concerns about animal welfare. And recently there have been other examples. Banks have started coming up with animal welfare policies too. There's been all the growth in plant-based food and even the development of cell-based or clean meat. So all these things are good and they have the potential to improve the welfare of animals through the invisible hand of the market, but they're kind of ad hoc responses to a perceived concern among the general public or certain segments of the public. What I feel is really encouraging though is that there's strong evidence of increasing recognition among the Australian community that animal welfare regulation is important. People want regulation that protects animals from suffering and provides them with a good life. There was a report by FutureEye a few years ago for the government that found that animals are increasingly seen by the general public as sentient beings that have capabilities, rights, and freedoms. And those people are concerned about the treatment of farmed animals and the current regulation. The report actually found that 95% of people view farmed animal welfare to be a concern, and 91% want at least some reform to address this. So that's quite fundamental, um, very significant majority of people. So it, it's an indicator that social norms in relation to animals are evolving. And this can provide a basis on which the animal welfare, animal protection movement can build on. We have a strong basis to build on in making a case for establishing strong institutions and effective procedures that enfranchise animals. Yeah, that uh, future eye report is really interesting and, and encouraging. I agree. So, Leo, 
What advice would you give to up-and-coming animal lawyers or animal law academics who want to turn advocating for animals into a living? That is a very good question. And I'm not sure if I'm the right person to answer it, um, though it's because it's not something that I have experience in being a PhD student. I guess if you look at um, if you look to enter into a PhD program and do an animal law thesis, the stipend can provide you with a living for about four years. So if that's the extent of it, I can I definitely think that that's one way of going about um, advocating for animals in academia and turning it into a living. So in terms of my experience, how I came to doing an animal law PhD, I came to it through my experience and interest in regulation. So I'd been working with an independent regulatory agency for a number of years, and I'd been researching regulation in other areas that had nothing to do uh, with animal welfare. So it's mainly to do corporate regulation. So I, I don't actually have a background in animal advocacy. I don't have a veterinary background which made certain aspects of my PhD uh, steep, but kind of a very exciting learning curve. But what I do bring to my work is that experience of working with a regulator and the knowledge of how regulation can work. So there's certain aspects of regulating animal welfare, which you could say are different to other forms of regulation, um, but there's also so many commonalities as well. So in terms of my two cents worth on this question, I think it's really helpful to think of the sort of person you are, the interests you have and the skills you have. So that's how probably I found myself researching animal welfare. I have a certain background, as I said, certain skills, probably a certain temperament or character as well. Um, the types of work I enjoy doing, I enjoy researching. Um, so I think I'm reasonably well suited to um researching animal welfare, also teaching students about animal law and other areas um, which impact on animals. But that's just me. Like others may have totally different skills or preferences for the type of work they want to do. So you may hate research and teaching, for example. So obviously academia is not going to be for you. Um, and I think the other piece of advice I have, which relates to the first, is there's probably all sorts of ways one can advocate for animals for a living that may not actually be very obvious even before you start out. So, um, well, I mentioned the Future Eye report, but I remember also reading there was a Productivity um, Commission report on agriculture, and that recommended significant changes to animal welfare policy. It's, I think it's been a very influential report. Um, and also the work that the ACCC has done over the years in relation to free-range labelling. So that's two areas of work produced by organisations that are traditionally focused on competition and efficiency, but they've actually had a significant impact on animal welfare policy. So clearly there's people there working in those organisations that care about animals and making a difference using the skills that they have. Um, and also I mentioned before that there's people in a range of industries and professions who are pushing on developing animal welfare, animal friendly policies or products. It's important to have people coming through the system who can advocate for animal interests in each of those areas and it'll probably make the movement much more resilient, relevant and effective. Leo, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it how detailed your analysis was. 
in response to each of those questions. And I reckon another meal at Lentil as anything in Thornbury is on the cards. What do you reckon? I think so. Maybe we can discuss your future research topics. Always happy to. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you learned something. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing. And we hope that you can join us for our next episode.